This is Stories of Wind, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. Hi, everyone. This is Rianne Campbell from Stories of Wynn. And today I'm interviewing Dr. Karen Simlinski. She is currently a full professor in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at University of California, Santa Barbara. And her lab studies the biochemical mechanisms that are underlying changes in brain and behavior that are produced by chronic exposure to drugs of abuse. So thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Zielinski. Well, thank you, Dr. Campbell. It's very, it's very great for me to be able to say that after having you as an undergraduate in my lab. So thank you very much for having me here. Uh, I know. I'm really excited to interview you um, and just to hear your story and share it with everyone else. Um, so we'd like to start usually from the beginning of what made you first interested in research and in neuroscience um, to get you started as um, you know, a professor as you are today. Well, it wasn't a love of neuroscience from the time I was born, that is for sure. So (laughs) my whole career trajectory was very windy and was highly, highly influenced by the personal experiences I had, particularly as an undergraduate up in Canada at McMaster University. So when I was little, I really wanted to be a veterinarian. And so I worked really, really hard in science. I always enjoyed it. But It was for the goal of becoming a veterinarian. Then in high school, about 10th grade, I started working with autistic children. And that was just incredibly fulfilling. And I said, you know what? I want to be a special needs pediatrician who focuses primarily on on individuals with developmental disorders and autism in particular. And then I got into university where I was actually working as a respite worker and still pursuing my goals of going to medical school. And this is when I actually started taking physiological psychology classes and dating a former uh, individual with a substance use disorder who at the time was in recovery. And it was the first time I had ever met someone with a substance use disorder Um, I mean, folks drank, you know, I'm part Polish and part Scottish, so drinks happen at home, but there was never anyone in my family with a substance use disorder. I was very fortunate. So I was really proud of him for being in recovery. However, as we know, who study addiction, that um, 75% of individuals relapse within the first week or so, if not month of being in recovery. And that indeed happened. And I still cared very deeply for this person, and I thought I could help them. Um, And of course, it was a very big struggle. My grades started getting affected by the late nights and the worrying constantly about him and not myself. And I just started becoming very fascinated by his behavior. He showed amphetamine psychosis. Uh, Actually, he almost attacked a poor cleaning lady uh, because he thought it was someone breaking into his house. And one time, this was the the big deal breaker for me, both in terms of our relationship and my career path, was the time that he took an entire bud of peyote. It was peyote that I had paid for. I had worked hard and long for my money, and I gave him the money to go buy it, and he was supposed to sell it and pay me back. No, he ate the whole thing. I came home from my classes at 530 in the afternoon after lab, 
And half of my bedroom was in the living room and half my living room was in the bedroom. And my two roommates were freaking out. And I said, is he home? And they said, like, they were terrified. And they said, yeah, he's in your room. Well, I woke him up and immediately he started behaving as if he had autism. Repetitive movements, repetitive um, um, speech. And immediately I was like, I switched into care worker mode. And the next day I went to my biopsychology professor and I busted past all the poor people in line. And I said, hey, Dr. Blackburn, is there any neurochemical similarity between peyote and autism? And he just turned to me and said, Karen, I think we need to talk in my office. So I talked with him and sure enough, there is, it's serotonin. But way back then, just from looking at behavior, I was like, there's gotta be something similar. And so that was really it. And then Dr. Blackburn, I was very fortunate, took me on as an undergrad research assistant because I kind of had this, this insight and foresight. And, and that was it. So from the moment I started working in the laboratory with rats, I'm like, wait a minute, I can work with animals, which is what I originally wanted to do as a veterinarian. I can conduct biomedical research, which obviously is ultimately hopefully going to help people. And I can do it my way, asking my questions. And that was it. And I've never looked back. I love that. Sorry, that was a very long story. No, that's perfect. That's exactly what we're here for. Like, I love that your story is through like your personal experience. You know, it's um, it's not unique, but it is in the sense that, you know, someone might say like, I read something in a book and that's what inspired me. And like, you're like, no, I interacted with people that need help. And I saw something that like sparked my curiosity. And like, here I am still, you know, trying to figure out what happened. I think it's amazing. Um, So that kind of, you know, got you interested in neuroscience and research. And so how did you kind of go about then deciding wh- where you wanted to maybe apply or go for for grad school and like how you were kind of choosing your mentor? Well, in terms of the grad school, this again relates to my relationship with the individual with substance use disorder because my grades basically went through the toilet. First semester of third year, I had a D in biochemistry, a C minus in organic chemistry. These are not grades that will get you into med school, dental school, or graduate school. So um, I knew I had to, to pull up my bootstraps. That was a big thing. And once, once we broke up and I focused on myself, grades all turned around. And of course, I was super interested. I had a goal super interested in in the work I was doing in school and the grades went way up. However, because I had those very low grades on my transcript, I basically was at the mercy of graduate schools. So I was Canadian or I am still am Canadian. (laughs) Um, So I wanted to work with some of the premier Canadian addiction researchers. So we don't have a lot of addiction researching. Well, didn't have a lot of addiction research in Canada at the time. And there were three major um, universities. I applied to graduate school in all three Mm -hmm. and I didn't get into any of them. So then that put me in a bit of a pickle. So I turned to my uh, fourth year uh, behavioral pharmacology professor. And I said, would you be interested in me staying on here as a master's student? 
hopefully I can, you know, get some research, bring up the grades, show that I can excel in graduate school as well, and then I'll reapply to these schools for my PhD program. And so Dr. Sheckman was very sweet, took me on, and I worked in his lab for two years. Then came the, okay, what do I do now? So I went again and I applied to those um, institutes that had the addiction research programs. And the one individual I really wanted to work with was Dr. David Roberts. He located to or North Carolina, and that made me an international student. And he did not have the funds for an international student. And then I still didn't get into the other two programs. So I was like, well, I don't really want to stay and do, I would be in a different department, but I didn't want to stay at McMaster and do my uh, PhD. So then I simply, and I still to this day cannot believe this happened, in, I believe it was May, I just went ahead and emailed Dr. Stan Glick at the Albany Medical Center. And I knew about Dr. Glick's research because as an undergraduate, I studied this uh, drug called Ibogaine. And Dr. Glick is the premier uh, animal researcher in the U.S. or in North America studying Ibogaine. And so I had asked him for some reprints and that, you know, two years before. And he wrote me back. This is email had just started, by the way. (laughs) So everything everything is like weird dot matrix emails. (laughs) And he emailed me back, said, when can you come down for an interview? I said, well, my animals are in withdrawal starting Monday. He's like, well, come on down. So here I go down to Albany, New York. I never, you know, considered going to school in the U.S. I go down, I bring my poor mom and I interview like on the fly. I didn't even apply. (laughs) I didn't even apply. I just came down, did the interview. Halfway through the interview, Dr. Glick pulled me aside and he goes, you know what? You should start looking for an apartment. So that same weekend, my mom then went out and we couldn't believe it was happening. Like it, it just seems so strange. So that was it that I had to get my student visa. And next thing you knew in August, end of August, there I was at Albany Medical College starting in their neuroscience PhD program. So <laughs> that was also a very odd sort of uh, set of circumstances. That's amazing. I mean, right, it shows in these early experiences, it's like your initiative is like you keep getting all these opportunities because you're not afraid to ask or to say something and to go for it. I think it's awesome. And that's really it because I truly, truly was at a loss. I was at the same time applying for tech lab technician programs at the University of Toronto. I'm like, I could move back home, live at home, save money, try again, try again, yeah. try again. And uh, and I just really, though deep down, did not want to try again yeah. and again and again. I, I wanted to go. I knew that if I worked as a technician, my motivation to go back to school yeah. might be a little bit weaker. Yeah. And I really, really had that drive. And maybe that was part of it exactly. that, you know, helped me. The rat tattoo on my back also <laughs> was a big plus in getting me into Albany <laughs> Met. They couldn't believe that someone would, working with rats, would get a rat tattooed on their back. So <laughs> that, that might have also helped a little. <laughs> but what, what was really important for me was, When I interviewed at Albany Med, I I really do want to mention this because this is something that I take uh, very, very seriously when I'm looking for for graduate students. The one thing they did was pull out my transcript 
which by the way, was in alphabetical order of the name of the courses I took. It was not divided up like a classic transcript, first year, second year, mm. no. So if you looked at my grades, they looked great. There was like A plus here, D minus, you know, it was all over the place. They took the time to look and see when did those bad grades happen. And then they went through and figured out how my Ds and C minuses and all of that turned into A's. And they said, you had a really bad semester in the beginning of third year. And I said, I sure as heck did. They said, would you like to tell us about it? And so I told them. And that, I mean, I almost started crying that they took the time to, to just recognize that something unpleasant had happened in my life, but that I overcame it. And, and that to me, so for me all the time, grades, they matter, but there's so much more than grades. And, and so that was really the deciding factor. I'm like, I want to be at a school that actually cares about people. I don't care if they're ranked a hundredth in terms of NIH funding. That's not important. It's the focus on you as a student and, and your own development. Yeah, no, I think that's such an important lesson. It's like, you know, applicants need to be seen as humans and recognize that there are human experiences <laughs> that can sometimes shape, you know, what these grades are, but they are helpful and like forming this strong-willed person that's like willing to, you know, go through all of these, uh, you know, difficult cir circumstances and persist. Um, I think that's great. Um, so when you, you know, get to Albany Medical, what um, do you study in Dr. Glick's lab? What is your um, dissertation on? So it actually was a direct tangent right off of my undergrad uh, project. So it was quite excellent. So I was able to start right away on my actual thesis experiments because when I interviewed, we chatted about, well, what do you think that meant and what would you want to do next? And so basically, one idea was that perhaps this anti-putative anti-addictive drug, Ibogaine, might be somehow reversing the sensitization of the dopamine system that happens with repeated drugs of abuse. And so most of the work at the time shown that Ibogaine would reduce cocaine taking, heroin taking, you pretty much name it, it would drop it in, in an animal. And all those animals are drug experienced. So one notion is that drug experience is changing your brain. And so maybe somehow Ibogaine can reverse some of those changes in such a way that now these drugs are not as reinforcing. So I basically learned uh, some new microdialysis techniques at the time. Um, I had not had any experience with that and learned how to do HPLC to measure dopamine and and actually also methamphetamine I could measure in the brain. And that was pretty much it. And because I had such a clear plan of what I wanted to do, and I also was used to kind of having undergrad assistants when I was at McMaster. So medical schools don't have undergraduates, right? So I went ahead, way up at about 45 minutes away was State University of, of New York, Albany, so SUNY Albany. And I posted flyers in the psych department. I said, undergrads wanted. 
And, uh, and thanks to my undergrads working on behavior while I was doing surgeries. Yeah, I ran a bunch of experiments uh, and got my PhD done in three years. Wow. So it was, it was very rapid. That's awesome. So um, I guess I don't know much about Ibogaine research. Is it still being considered as this, you know, anti-addictive medicine or like, is it potential of like looking at its properties for therapeutic use? Not in this country, which is. Um, a little bit of a bee in my bonnet. Um, <laughs> but yes, pretty much in the Netherlands, it's actually oh. uh, used uh, clinically as well as in Mexico. Oh, wow. And in, uh, most U.S. citizens who are seeking treatment will go to the clinic in Mexico. Uh, Vancouver, Canada, up in British Columbia, they have what's called the Aboga House. And you can go in there for migraine treatment, addiction treatment, depression. They give you various different uh, types of hallucinogenic drugs. So this thing I should back up is it's a hallucinogenic drug. It causes a massive surge. And we've seen this in the rats, right? Massive surge in serotonin. And the hallucinogenic effects last quite a long time. Um, it also has some cardiovascular uh, issues, will cause a slowing of the heart. So you need to be monitored on an EKG and all of that. And, and there have been some deaths reported, whether it had to do with a pre-existing condition, uh, with, the, with heart problems and all of that. So all of these sort of factors really, really reduced NIH's interest in the compound. Now, that being said, uh, while I was in Dr. Glick's lab in Albany, uh, there was a drug, co a tiny little uh, drug company started up and they started creating derivatives of Ibogaine. And one of them was called 18-methoxycornaridine, a nice mouthful, 18-MC <laughs> for short, easier to say. Um, that has no serotonin releasing properties at all. If you injected a rat with it, you couldn't tell if he was on 18-MC or just a saline control. And versus Ibogaine, you could tell they were on Ibogaine. They were like sliding down the cage. They looked extremely drunk. So 18MC is actually in uh, clinical trials in Brazil for overeating and for obesity. And they've done, I think they've moved, they've moved past phase one. I think they're on phase two, if not potentially phase three studies. So these drugs are being administered to humans. They are, the one in Brazil is, is like double blind placebo controlled a study of 18MC and, and overeating. Um, so I'm kind of hoping with this turnaround with low dose ketamine and, and you know, the sort of revival of the therapeutic potential of hallucinogenic drugs that Ibogaine and its less serotonin-releasing derivatives might start to shine again. And in that respect, um, we're hoping, I can't talk too much about it because it's a drug company contract, but we're working with, uh, trying to work with Gilgamesh Pharmaceuticals on another uh, Ibogaine derivative that they have. And that actually whole collaboration happened because of a former grad student at UCSB. Uh, Adam Klein, Dr. Adam Klein, he's now at Gilgamesh. And he said, I know someone who knows a bit about Ibogaine and can do these sorts of studies. 
you know, and then maybe that might go somewhere. So I am still very, very hopeful that there'll be a revival. But yes, right now, anytime I mention Ibogaine to anyone at NIH, they roll their eyes at me. So I just have to be patient. Exactly. Progress is slow, but it'll happen. <laughs> cool. So so from that, um, how did you kind of decide um, where you wanted to go for your postdoc uh, lab? So for that, for me, was... There was a twofold issue. One was, well, one was the country I wanted to live in. Because uh, as a Canadian, I never perceived myself living in the U.S. I always imagined returning to Canada. Well, remember I said there was only the three institutions. Well, Dr. Roberts moved down to UNC and Dr. Jane Stewart retired. So <laughs> there was even less opportunity for me to postdoc. Also at the time, the, the Canadian science funding was very, very low, and the U.S. science funding was very, very high. So it just made more sense for me to stay in the U.S. I would have an easier time. There were more positions, first off, to choose from. And then in terms of which lab, I actually thought about some different ones. One notion was maybe I'd like to do some non-human primate work. Um, the other was I would definitely love to do drug self-administration experiments because I actually had never done that before. And so I started looking around. And at the time, well, still to this day, I would say, uh, Dr. Peter Kalibas down at the Medical University of South Carolina was a leader in terms of neurobiology of cocaine addiction. So living in South Carolina sounded a lot more pleasant than the snow of Albany, New York. <laughs> and actually, Dr. Kalivas got invited up to, to give a talk. And so Dr. Glick was very sweet, set up a little meeting to include me. So Peter got to know me. And um, Peter was good friends with another faculty member at Albany Med. And basically, who told him, you don't take care and you'd be crazy. Aww. So he called me at 6 a.m. one morning and said, I was told I'd be crazy not to take you, so welcome to my lab. Uh, and, and that's how it happened. So, yeah, so I ended up uh, moving down to South Carolina, again, with the notion, of, as you know, being in a postdoc position right now, yeah. you're kind of like, it's a two-year window all the time. Yeah. So when two years are up, uh, do you make a change or do you stay? And I thought for sure, again, I would move back to Canada after two years. And just research just kept happening. And Dr. Clivus was happy and I was happy. And then I got to start working with mice, which I'd never done before. These Homer 2 knockout mice, which pretty much is what was the foundation of, of the start of my career. You know those mice very well because you worked with them too. There was just a lot of opportunity and it kept growing. And I was able to get a, a fellowship, a, um, a postdoc fellowship from the Canadian government to stay in South Carolina. So that certainly helped. And I just kept chugging along. And, and then after five and a half years or well, about four years, we're like, okay, maybe it's time. There were lots of jobs uh, at the time on the market. And then we're like, now it's time to maybe start applying and, and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So what, so right. You mentioned these Homer two knockout mice. Um, uh, do you mind explaining a little bit about the role of Homer two? I can do that. So I grew up in a dopamine world. I was a dopamine girl. Everyone around me did dopamine. And the one thing that really uh, was intriguing to me, even when I interviewed in Dr. Kalivas's lab, 
is he was like, no, dopamine's been done. If dopamine was the root of all evil of substance use disorders, we would have cured it by now because we have so many different kinds of drugs that target the dopamine system in so many different kinds of ways, and none of them work, particularly for stimulant drugs. And at the time I was, from my past history, my experience very much interested in amphetamines and and cocaine addiction. So he started sort of turning around to what other major neurotransmitters you know, could be driving drug craving and drug seeking behavior. And this is where this glutamate story emerged. So glutamate. So if we call dopamine, you know, the major neurotransmitter for motivation, glutamate, we always refer to as the major excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain. Now, it's not always excitatory, but in general, when you think of, you know, learning and memory in your brain, just paying attention, it's glutamate that's in part driving a lot of this. And so it kind of made sense because glutamate's found in all of these parts of your brain, particularly your frontal cortex, that controls decision-making and values and reward valuation. And we know that all those things go wrong with addiction. So maybe this glutamate coming out of your frontal cortex, going down to other brain regions that control memory, control emotion, control motivation, you know, maybe that's the culprit. And that's what Dr. Clivus's work has focused on. And so that got me into glutamate. So I learned all about the glutamate receptors. And then when you learn all about the glutamate receptors at that time, we were learning about what keeps those receptors in place. And this is where I started learning about these Homer proteins. So it's a family proteins. Fruit flies have them. We have them. Mice and rats have them. And their job is to keep those glutamate receptors where they're supposed to be. But if your brain starts changing because you're learning or growing and developing or using drugs or chronically stressed out, those Homer proteins can kind of loosen up on those receptors. The receptors move around and now maybe you'll have too many receptors or you'll have too few receptors. So when that glutamate signal comes, you'll have a very different neuron response. So no one had studied these Homer proteins really in the in the context of addiction. So Dr. Kalivas's lab's like, let's, you know, let's do it. So I had some uh, friends of mine, colleagues in the lab, they were playing with rats and raising and lowering Homer expression. And then I got the knockout mice. And so, yeah, so I'd never touched a mouse before. In fact, I always thought uh, they were really smelly compared to a rat. And they're definitely not as friendly. And I was never super thrilled to to begin working with mice, but it was totally unknown how these mice would behave. And that was my job, was basically to figure out how do they behave on, well, first was to how do they behave on drugs? But of course, when you're studying that, you have some animals that aren't on drugs. And it was when I was doing these tests, I'm like, you know, this Homer one knockout He's really anxious. And every time you try to go pick up the mice, they would try to squeal at you. And you're like, whoa, there's something up with this Homer, the mouse missing the Homer 1 gene. That's not the same as the mouse missing the Homer 2 gene. So then I said, I got to study all these other kinds of behaviors 
that have nothing to do with drugs just to, to characterize this mouse because it's very different, you know? And so that really exposed me to a whole broad range. I had to reach out to cl- other people who study mouse behavior, borrow their equipment, get trained by them. And, uh, but it now my lab runs all of these different types of assays, um, even to look at the effects of drugs of abuse on learning and memory, for instance. Well, now we have all these these paradigms. And it was all because I switched over, started fresh, you know, working with with these Homer mice. Yeah, that's great. I think it's, you know, I feel like you're always um, collaborating and seeking opportunities to create new projects. And um, I think it's great. It's right. It's clear you're doing it in your postdoc and that it helped kind of establish uh, your research directions for your own lab. Once you kind of decided, you know, this is your interest in looking at these Homer 2 proteins um, and how they potentially regulate inputs of uh, glutamate neurotransmission that's important for cocaine and kind of drug-related behaviors. Um, How did you then decide, okay, I'm going to then start looking for a job and I'm going to establish my research and make this kind of lab? What was kind of your thinking of where to go and then like how you made a lab, basically? Oh, right. So the first off, and this actually, we had a session at the American College on uh, Neuropsychopharmacology about this. The whole big thing when you have a super exciting project as a postdoc is to have that conversation with your postdoc supervisor, mentor to say, is it okay if I take some of it or all of it with me? And so I was very, very fortunate that Dr. Kalivas had a lot of other things going on and a lot of other postdocs with a lot of other exciting projects that he really was like, no, this is absolutely fine. Here's my plan for what I want to keep doing. And I said, well, that sounds great because I'm going to look at these other aspects. And he didn't study alcohol and I did study alcohol. And so it was very actually nice and clean in that regard of, you know, what could I take with me? Now, in terms of where I wanted to work, it's so funny because this is a whole session on women in neuroscience, but women in neuroscience are sometimes involved in relationships. So over the course of my PhD, thanks to the Society for Neuroscience and their graduate student parties, I met my fiance. So my fiance actually um, was a neuroscientist as well, also trained originally as a psychologist and then uh, more behavioral pharmacology type thing and then moved into um, sort of stem cell research and in neuroscience. And so we knew we had a two body problem, even though we weren't yet married. But so what we were doing was applying to cities, universities and cities where there were more than one, you know, more than one institution, because we basically figured, particularly from experiences that more senior folks that I knew had had where they lived in different countries. If you're in the U.S., you're living in two different states, like five hours apart from each other. We knew we weren't going to do that. Um, So we're like, let's pick big cities like Chicago, New York, Montreal, you know, Vancouver, we're looking all over in these large cities. And a lot of the times there would be one spot, at one university. But, you know, we knew from the grapevine that there might be other positions. So this is what made Santa Barbara very interesting, because 
we only have UCSB in terms of a four-year college in this relatively small town. But what we also had in this relatively small town at UCSB was a Canadian colleague of ours who was in neuroscience and behavior who told us we have one position this year and one position next year. So you guys should apply now because we have two positions on the books. So if folks really, really like you both, there is an avenue for us to hire you both independently of each other. So it's not a spousal hire or anything like that. And so we were really dismayed because we interviewed, Todd had interviewed and uh, so Dr. Kippen, my husband's Todd Kippen, he had interviewed in Chicago and that was looking good, but then nothing for me. And I'd interviewed in SUNY Buffalo looking good, but nothing for Todd. So we're like, let's do it. So we applied and sure enough, we are two of the three that get shortlisted. So as I'm interviewing, it came out that they were also interviewing my fiance. And uh, so he came, I was the first one. And then uh, he interviewed the next week. And so everyone knew. <laughs> and and then actually what they did was offer the job to the third person. <laughs> and I figured that was probably just because it was, it was, he did birdsong and he was doing like remote EEG recordings from birds. It was really cool. Uh, and I could see why that would interest, especially a psychology department where we have evolutionary psychologists and he was a birdsong person. So it also learning and memory people got excited. But as you know, because you were at UCSB, we do not have an aviary, at least not a research aviary. So Offering an individual who studies flying birds for a living, um, there's no accommodations for this individual. So needless to say, they said, no, thank you. So they said, all right, we're stuck with the two of them. And, <laughs> and that was it. So we uh, basically, because there was the two positions already there, I started six months later than anticipated. He started six months earlier and March 2015 Oh, no, 2005. What am I saying? 2015. 2005. <laughs> yes, it's been a long time. Um, we we moved to Santa Barbara. And, and it was so funny because we are one of, I got to count them now. I think we have six, six couples in our department. So we're a very pro-family um, pro department. But intriguingly, again, we were not yet married. And in fact, when we interviewed, we were not even living in the same country, let alone the same place. So um, so they must have seen something, you know, in, in Todd and I that we weren't sure we saw ourselves yet. But we did it and we moved over. We yeah, we ended up getting married two years later in Santa Barbara. Um, but yeah, so so that's how that happened. So. You know, and then it was funny, about four days after we signed the contract, University of Chicago offered me a position. So we could have both moved to Chicago, but we're like, you know what? We're in the same department. 
life will be so much easier being at the same institution. And that's how, that's what she wrote. <laughs> I love that. I mean, your guys' work complements each other so much. I think it's, it's great being able to kind of work in your lab and being able to kind of see what's going on in his lab and stuff too. It was a really great experience to be able to kind of straddle both labs at times. Yeah. And like we say, it's, it's, you got science mom and you have science dad. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, you've got another person who understands, but even from a relationship standpoint, you know, a lot of folks uh, say to me like, oh my God, you live together, you work together. Does that drive you crazy? I'm like, we're not talking to each other unless there's, you know, there's something we've got to talk about that has to, something yeah. to do with the department or a collaboration. Um, and when we're home, now we're driving the kids all over the place. So we barely, we barely talk at home. And I, I said, but for me, it, especially when the, when my kids were tiny, tiny, like not in, in daycare yet, having his office right across from my office, if I had the baby and I had to run to a meeting or to teach a lecture, I literally took six steps and handed him the baby. And I said, milk's in the fridge. I'm off to lecture. And we couldn't have done that, right? If we had two different careers or we're even in two different buildings, two different departments. And, and it's so important, I find, in a relationship that you have someone who truly understands. Because academia is... I'm trying to think of what other jobs would be similar. And I can think of lawyer. You know, lawyers have a case. Then they've got to do all sorts of research, long, late hours of studying, you know, studying, studying. Then you got to go meet and all of this. MDs are a bit different. They've got, you know, a job. There, There's 12 hours. They got to be at the hospital or you're on call. Sometimes, yes, you do research on your own, but it's not necessary for your job. Right. You can come home after working in the emergency room and turn on the TV and and just be yourself and not still be in academia mode or lawyer mode or work mode. So a lot of people who don't live this life don't understand it. And so being married to someone who is is a neuroscientist or any kind of scientist or academic is so for me, I think has been so crucial to our abilities to both be successful and our abilities to raise children because it is a shared responsibility, he would argue. And I, I have to say, I think I agree with him. He does more of the day-to-day childcare and house cleaning than I do, but I do all the coaching and driving around and, and all that with the kids that he doesn't do. But, but it's, definitely 60 40 if not 50 50 arrangement you know when it when it comes to things and people who don't understand the stress that you go under wouldn't appreciate why i need you to cook dinner tonight you know or or something or you know vacuum vacuum the house tonight because i can't i have to do this no that's so true i've always kind of seen you being able to obviously like be a mom and be able to kind of go out and do these things where you're coaching your kids and also doing science. And I think like that was always really inspiring to see. And I think it's just something I want to highlight, I guess, in this interview that like you, you do both and it's always so shocking to see it, but like you do, and it's pretty amazing. (laughs) An article on this, I called it the work-life balance beam. And there's really, there's no such thing in academia anyway, 
There's no such thing as work-life balance, right? At any given moment, one is going to dominate over the other. The, the important point is in the grand scheme of things, out of you know the 24 hours in the day, have you tried to split your time you know, as equally as you can, or if not, you know, now my children are older, so they understand they actually have homework to do themselves, right? So they're they're now appreciating this a little bit more. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, if tonight is working on the computer night, tomorrow night is, you know, watching a movie or we're going to cook a big fancy dinner or something like that night, so that all to, in the end things balance out. But definitely at any given moment, I can't obviously be writing a grant if I'm on a basketball court and there are times where I'm like, why did I volunteer to coach basketball? I could have a grant going in right now. And then of course, then there's all the stress that you don't have the money because you didn't put in the grant. Um, But I think honestly, if, if I was just sitting at my desk writing grants all the time, I mean, I already put on 30 pounds during COVID. I would hate to know how much more weight I would put on if I'm not at least running the kids around and 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 doing that sort of thing yeah no I, I i appreciate the balance i think it's great i also wanted to kind of touch on as you know you have your lab over 10 years almost 20 and, it's yeah, I was scary like, <laughs> it's almost 20 years 18 years like, i know i was like I, I was trying to do the math um and so how do you kind of see managing your lab and i think i guess something that i can say is that i've always loved seeing that you have a lot of undergrad students that you get really involved and they're not, you know, just doing the dishes, right? They, you really do have this philosophy of like having undergrads really get in and doing research. Um, And so I guess kind of your thoughts on your decision to do that and how you kind of think about your lab structure. Well, when you think back, you know, to my, my history, if it wasn't for Dr. Blackburn offering me that spot in the lab, I'd probably still be applying to medical schools. You know, it. (laughs) It was life changing. What I also really appreciated, and he said it straight to my face. He's like, you know, of the 12 students who applied, you had the worst grades. And I said, yep. He said, but you're the only one who asks interesting questions in class. So you're my top pick. And that was like, really was my first time ever, ever realizing that, you know, grades aren't everything, you know, sort of thing. So I mean, we've been, I, I think a lot of, um, I've been blessed in in that I've never had a shortage of undergraduate students interested in, in my laboratory. Yeah. Having to, to shut down for almost a year to undergrad research, it broke my heart. I had over 150 students on a wait list. Yeah. Just waiting. Some kids that were moving into fourth year had emailed me and then had first year students also emailing me. And and it was so hard. So especially the past like two and a half years, I've been trying to get those seniors that this is their last Mm. chance to do any research, get them into the lab. And then the um now that they're kind of gone we're sort of getting back to normal and so i'm i'm looking for students who are transfer students because i realized when they were at city uh community college or city college they might not have had research opportunities so we got some of those coming coming in and and then try to grab some more junior students who again are emailing me with you know i don't have the best grades but 
I'm really interested in your lab because of this, that, and the other thing happened to my family and, or I've seen this happening and it's made me wonder that. And it's like a little flashback to, to my experience as an undergrad. And, um, and so that's what I'm really looking forward to. Uh, obviously, students who have very low, low grades, they they do need to focus on their grades so they can't yeah, be spending yeah. much time in the lab because grades do matter. Um, but if their their grades are decent, then I'm like, sure, come on in. So, yep. So I, I was just before you turned on the, the recorder there, I just emailed 20 students to start <laughs> working in the lab. We're going to start training them towards the end of this quarter so they can hit the ground running in the summertime and hopefully they'll be almost independent and on their own in uh, when the school year starts. That's great. Um, well, I think we're finishing up. I guess our last question is usually, you know, what's kind of your favorite activity to do outside of the lab? So my favorite activity would probably be going to Disneyland which I've not done in a while. We got to go to Disneyland Paris. That was excellent uh, in the summer. Um, yeah, so that's definitely, if I could stop everything and do something like right now, I'd like to go to Disneyland. Uh, but more more financially and practically speaking, my honestly, my favorite thing to do is, is to watch basketball, whether it's watching it on, um, you know, on TV or watching it live. UCSB actually made it. <laughs> made it to the championships we didn't last long but we made it um and uh and of course I do in, enjoy coaching and all of that but I think my days of I used to be a bass player I used to do a lot of cross stitching and arts and crafts and things like that and uh just with a busy mom part of my life now that I don't get a lot of free time or quiet time where I could even pick up an instrument and play it anymore. So I think for, for fun, that's what I do. I just sit down, you know, get some food, maybe grab a beer. I've been known to have one of those once in a while. And, and yeah, and just, just sit and watch a game and hoot and holler. And I get the dogs up with me on the couch. And once in a while, I try to convince a kid to watch. And yeah, that's, that's pretty much, pretty much it, I'd say. That's great. Well, I hope you get to enjoy it basketball game very soon. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's great to see you again.